This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. The last time I had Heartland's Senior Fellow Meteorologist Anthony Watts on, it was to discuss the release of an early version of his booklet, Climate at a Glance, for Teachers and Students, which went on to become a bestseller in several categories on Amazon. If you have not purchased it, I encourage you to do so. Better yet, get a twosome. One from Amazon and a copy of his newest release from the Heartland Institute, quote, Corrupted Climate Stations, the official U.S. surface temperature record remains fatally flawed. That's the name of the study. Which is what he's here to discuss today. In truth, way back when climate change was labeled, labeled global, global warming, the whole idea to me was sort of more honest. The basic underlying cause of how catastrophic climate change is supposed to be occurring as greenhouse gases accumulating in the atmosphere, trapping heat, warming the earth, driving myriad other changes, including changes in weather events. The problem for the narrative is the earth has not been warming to the degree, pun fully intended, that climate models have consistently projected over the years. No catastrophic warming, no catastrophic climate change. Worst news for climate alarmists, but not for average folks with other things to worry about on their minds, is the fact that even the warming recorded is biased, with reported average temperatures and temperature trends being higher and steeper than would be reported if accurate measuring devices were used. This is where Anthony's groundbreaking research comes in, research that has now been updated. Anthony, thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be here. So, Anthony, the genesis of your report, Corrupted Climate Stations, the official U.S. surface temperature record remains fairly flawed, actually began more than a decade ago with a previous report published by Harlan. What prompted your initial review of surface stations? Well, actually, it was a bit of serendipity. I was actually looking at a different process related to weather stations, the old Stevenson screens, the the white boxes that look like slatted chicken coops. These were put together in the 1890s when the Weather Bureau was formed, and they put the thermometers in there to get the daily readings. And they used to paint those things back then in 1890 with whitewash, you know, from Tom Sawyer days. And I was curious about how the effect of temperature inside those boxes might change as they change the paint on these things to go from whitewash to latex because you can't get whitewash anymore. I mean, uh, literally, it doesn't exist. You can't buy it anywhere. And so I was wondering what latex paint did to these. And so I started going around and looking at stations, and I'm working on a scientific report about paint. Um, and I started looking at stations to to see how they were painted, whether they had been, you know, kept up with whitewash, painted with lead paint, painted with latex or whatever. So I started reviewing stations around where I lived in Chico, California. And um, the closest one was the Chico State University Farm, which seemed reasonably well maintained, except surprisingly, they had a radio transmitter inside the box to automatically send the, the temperature back to the Sacramento Weather Service office on a daily basis. And I, I thought that was really strange because, you know, electronics generates heat. Why would you put that inside the temperature shelter? Um, so I, I, there was that one. And then I went and looked at another one in Orland, California, and it was perfect for the most part. It it was well-maintained. It, it didn't have any issues like electronics in it. It had a sidewalk 
somewhat close, but for the most part, it was away from anything bothersome. And uh, then I went to another one in Marysville, California, the next closest one, which was at the fire station down there. And when I went there, I had discovered that they had changed the Stevenson screen box to something called an MMTS, which was basically, it looked like a beehive on a pole or a set of stacked dinner plates uh, that the, that the enclosure to allow airflow. And I was shocked because it was literally in the middle of a parking lot. And the fire chief had a special parking space where he put his vehicle right next to this sensor where the radiator was just a couple of feet from it. And in addition to that, when I was standing there looking at it, there was the city had rented out space to a cell phone company at the fire station, and they had a tower there. And there were two equipment buildings behind me, both running huge air conditioning units. And I could feel warm air blowing from the air conditioning units onto the sensors. I stood there. And it was also part of a patio in the back. And there was a, a barbecue, a big barbecue grill that the firefighters used on a regular basis. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, this is a climate station? This is where we measure climate change? I, I was just gobsmacked. And so what happened is, is that the paint project kind of went by the wayside because I discovered this much bigger problem where two out of three stations I looked at initially had issues of heat bias. And that's how it got started. So what was the outcome of that review? And what was the response by the media, the scientific community, and the government to it? Well, when I put together the first report in 2009, um, the the media and the, the scientific community went really, and the government went nuts. I mean, it, the, there was a lot of outrage. There was, you know, the greater, greater Thunberg response. How dare you, you know, go out and look at these things? You know, we're scientists. We're perfect was like a kind of response. You know, how dare you question science? Well, Science is meant to be questioned. Science, you know, it rises and falls based on questions. So, you know, I, I took it with a grain of salt, but the, the response in the media was, you know, the typical tactics, you know, climate denier, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the scientific community actually tried to tamp it down. Um, there was a response uh, paper in 2010 basically saying, well, we looked at it and there's no issue. But... It's good that he looked at it, and this was the fun part. They, they, in that paper, they actually gave me credit, saying, yes, it's reasonable to look at these stations. We don't find an effect, but we're going to leave the question open and just in case there might be something. So it was kind of like uh, it was to give the media a talking point so that they can say, yeah, yeah, they, the scientific studies said it doesn't have any issue, but you know they're going to leave it open. But wait, wait, uh, wait. The government – Wait, before, before <laughs> you get to that, before you get to that – so, but but what were the findings? I mean, how were the stations? What was the percentage compromised? And and because they, if 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 you found that nothing was wrong, they wouldn't even have responded at all. The point is, you found something, and they felt obligated to respond to what you found. So, what was it you found about the stations? Uh, and uh, and then tell us, well, you know, how everybody be- responded. At that time, we'd surveyed about 850 of the 1,220 or so stations that are in the U.S. Historical Climatological Network, the USHCN, and we found that 89% of them were compromised, Um, and that was in 2009. With an 89% compromised 
in the way that they were cited, closer to heat sinks and other heat biases like air conditioner units or the radiators of the fire chief parking his truck, that kind of stuff. With 89% of it having a bias like that, it basically says that you can't really get good data out of it. But their response was, oh, yes, we can. We can correct for all this. And we use these statistical methods and so forth and so on. And they didn't really care so much that these stations were corrupted. Their response was, oh, we can fix it statistically. But the problem is, is that when you reach a certain point of saturation of bad data, I don't care how smart you are or how statistically enabled you are, you can't fix that much bad data and get an actual signal out of it that's really representative of what's happening. It's just too much. And, and the government, uh, you know, they published a response. Uh, NOAA published a response, a talking points memo, basically saying, don't worry about this. We can fix it and blah, blah, blah. And the, the whole response from the media, scientific community, and the government was to try to tamp this down. But then the inspector generals got involved, and they actually found that it was a problem, right? I mean, the, the Weather Service has standards. National Weather Service has standards, and they violated they do. these standards. And the inspector generals got involved from two different agencies, and they found it was a problem, right? Yeah, they did. There was the office of uh, the inspector general did a report, and then there was also the general accounting office, the GAO. Both of these agencies went in and did an, an, a report, an evaluation based on what I had found. The problem was is that none of these, neither of these two agencies went out and actually looked at the stations. They just talked to people within NOAA. You know, they had interviews over the phone or by email or whatever. And so they didn't actually get a handle on the real problem. Uh, even though they said there was a problem, they didn't actually go out and do, you know, the feet on the ground, let's look at it kind of thing. But then some interesting things happened shortly thereafter. The NOAA and the National Climate Data Center started to change. They created new uh, a, a new networks of, of temperature stations, two separate ones, uh, one that was supposed to be high quality. Tell us about that, because that, I think, was a response to this. It's like they're tacitly acknowledging that there's a problem. Um, yes. That they went out and created Action two separate data sets. Kind of thing. Yeah, they did. They created a um, climate reference network, which had actually been in the works since 2005, but they had kept it quiet. Um, the climate reference network was basically everything that the existing surface network of stations in the USHCN is not. They are state-of-the-art, triple redundant temperature sensors, air aspirated. They are purposely sighted away from any kind of urbanization. Now, these things are all out in the boonies, so to speak. They're away from concrete, asphalt, buildings, uh, and other influences. And they are designed to be the perfect detection system for climate change. They allude to this on their own website talking about it. Yep. And yet the thing never got put into any kind of monthly reports or whatever that the, the public gets, you know, like the monthly national climate report, the national climate assessment, any of those things. It never got reported on. It was just used sort of in the background. And then they created a another network out of the old network. There's there's It's, it's kind of hard for people to grasp this, but let me see if I can describe it. There, When the Weather Bureau was formed in 1890, they created something called the Cooperative Observer Network, and its original mission was for forecast verification. 
when the Weather Service didn't have computers and all that, they needed to get information back so they could tell how good their their man-made human-derived forecasts were. They had to get you know things like how hot what was it, how cold was it, how much rain fell, so that they could compare that to their forecast and get better at it. And so they created a network of thousands of these stations around the United States, and a lot of them are um, they were created based on availability of people to operate them because you had to write everything down on paper and so um, and mail it in once a month. So we would find these thing, things at, at, at police stations, fire stations, ranger stations, wastewater treatment plants, which also run 24-7, uh, other places like this. So they had to have, have these, um, you know, in these odd places, which got built up over the years and changed. So, but they, there were thousands of these things, not just the subset of 1,200 or so, which they deemed the best of the best. There was like, you know, almost 10,000 of these things. And so what happened in 2014 is Noah said, well, we're just not going to use the, 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 the network, the subnetwork that I criticized, the USHCN, the best of the best, supposedly. We're going to use the entire network of thousands of these stations and create a new thing called N-Climate Division. And personally, I think it was done entirely so that they could sidestep the criticism of the USHCN. They made it disappear basically, and created a new network with thousands of these stations and say, see, it's all better now. Except it's 13 years later and we have a new report. And has the situation improved? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, it's gotten worse. Now, I went out and did a sampling of uh, about 128 stations in both the old network, the USHCN, and this new and climate division network, which was it gets confusing for someone who's not in the middle of this, but there's something, another network called GHCN. Anyway, bottom line is we looked at all of the stations spread around the United States. We sampled uh, several states, California, Oregon, uh, Idaho, Montana, uh, Texas, uh, Florida, um, Virginia, I mean, all, all over the place. We looked at stations and we did this two ways. We did it with uh, on-site visits and photography and measurements, and we also did it through Google Earth satellite uh, looking at the station. Bottom line is, is that it's gotten worse. Back in 2009, about 89% of the stations had some level of corruption based on their placement. The new surveys sampling this year showed that number had increased to 96%, not just for the USHCN, but for all stations. Part of this new N climate division thing that they created in 2014. So it's gotten worse. And this was backed up by the fact that we've got peer reviewed studies showing um, they did a, a, a paper by Kevin Gallo, who's out of the uh, University of um, Colorado, I believe, uh, did a study showing that non permeable surfaces, asphalt, concrete, et cetera, have gotten closer to these weather stations over a period of time, significantly closer. So that backed up what we had to say and what we found. But then we also found that part of the response that the government had to my initial report and the the, uh, inspector general and GAO investigations was they went out and did an experiment at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. They started this in 2015. They ran it for four years. And then they, they published in 2019. And they found, basically, by doing an experiment where they were placing temperature sensors closer to and further away from, at specific points, uh, a big asphalt 
parking lot and a building, that yes, indeed, the proximity of the thermometer to these surfaces, the building, the concrete, the bricks, all that, yes, there's an effect, and it's significant. And so they proved our point. And it's not just... It's not just significant what they found, I believe. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember when that study came out. What they found was the effect was actually uh, extended farther than they had initially assumed it would. In other words, it, it wasn't 30 feet out or, or 30 yards out. It was 100 feet out, right? Yeah, well, it's, it, it, it's more than 100 feet. They said that it went yeah. out to as far as 50 meters. Right, so more which, than 150 Which is about 150 feet. feet. Yeah. So uh, basically they confirmed it. So, yeah, there's a real effect there. And, and yes, the problem's gotten worse. And But here's the bottom line. The Weather Service uh, hasn't done anything to fix these. Yes, they closed some of the most embarrassing stations that we brought to public attention. But they're still using a majority of stations that have a strong heat bias because of their placement. And they are not using the data from the Climate Reference Network to define the climate of the United States. They're, yeah. they're, they're just it's ignoring al- it. It's almost as if they ignore it, it, it. No matter how bad the station was, unless you specifically identified it as especially egregious, in which case they went out and closed it. But other than that, they just yeah. ignored it, right? I mean, it's like same same kinds of problems. Uh but because you didn't, uh, the media didn't pick up on it because you didn't highlight it, then they ignored it. Exactly. And then, know, they, and, they, and then, as you say, they created a good network, and they don't use it because it, it, I think it's because it doesn't prove their point. No, and the problem that we've got now is that the global warming climate change issue has become a an economic monster onto itself. You know, there is. Billions of dollars flowing into this climate change, you know, uh, you, you see all kinds of research being done and, and lots of make work and agencies being built around it. And it's just become its own monster that's eating up money. And once you create a government agency eating up money, it never goes away and you can't hardly shut it down. And that's the problem we've got here. They are they are not interested in doing correct science or fixing the real problems. They're only interested in perpetuating this economic engine that has stemmed from you know, climate change studies. So you did these, uh, it was you and another uh, a set of uh, uh, volunteers. I was m- among them here in Texas who went out and, um, you know, you, you got a list of stations. We went out, we took pictures from different angles. Um, and then you, you did a, um, you did a rankings. You used some standards yeah. that were established to do rankings of these. Yeah, for transparency's sake, describe that a bit. Okay. So there was a publication done in 1998 by a fellow by the name of Michael Leroy. He's from Meteo France. He's a meteorologist there. And he described a rating system for placement of stations compared to the distance to concrete, asphalt, and so forth. They understood this problem way back in 1998. So he created a rating system of one to five, where one is the best station where um, any kind of influence is at least 100 meters away to the worst, a number five, where literally the station's on top of the concrete or the asphalt. And so we were able to rate these stations through photographs and also through measuring tools 
associated with Google Earth Professional, where you can look down on the station and you could measure the actual distance. Uh, and we did that in the 2009 report uh, and came up with these ratings. And then we did this again in 2022, but we also used something from a new publication that, that Dr. Leroy produced in 2010, where not only was it distance, but it's the amount of surface area uh, of these elements. Like, you know, you could have, um, to give you an example, let's say someone put a little um, paver stone right in front of the weather station for when they had to walk up to it to get the open the door on the Stevenson screen to get the the reading. And so this one little one foot by one foot paver stone being a piece of concrete right next to the station in the old system would give it a rating of five. But that's not truly representative of the effect. The amount of surface area is really more important. And so that equates to how much surface area of these surfaces like asphalt and concrete are near the station. And so that's what we did secondly. And that comes up with a different set of numbers. And when you do it that way, the numbers are much, much more representative of the bias. And so we figured that out and did that in 2022. And the problem is, is that we're up to about 96% of the stations are corrupted in that way, one way or another. And we did a, a plot of temperature, uh, produced a graph showing unbiased stations you know, that are acceptably cited by NOAA's own standards and by Leroy's standards versus the ones that are not. And the difference between the two is about 50%. The ones that are not biased have a warming rate over the last 30 years of about half of all the other stations. So, and and there were only 4% of the stations, according to this survey, that either ranked one and two, you know, unbiased or largely unbiased, correct? Yes, that's right. And the rest were either three through five, varying degrees of uh, really bad bias. Do you know off the top of your head how many actually were the worst of the worst fives? Well, percentage-wise, not number-wise, but percentage-wise. You don't know off the top of your head. Well, I'm not quite sure I understand what you're asking. You're asking how many of them were fives? Yeah, how many, what percentage were fives? Okay. Um, the very worst. I would say there about ten percent to fifteen percent were fives. Uh, the vast majority of them were threes and fours. Okay. So, why do you believe, Anthony, the current station array and reporting has gone from bad to worse, rather than having improved since the initial report? Well, I, I think it's basically because we've got an ad hoc collection of competing interest. Um, these weather stations are administered by the local National Weather Service office. Every city has one. You know, like Dallas has one, Sacramento has one, New York City has one. And they are responsible for the placement of these sensors. The problem is that in every case, it's a one-man band. It's not like a team of people. It's one person. One person with a shovel, and, you know, some hand tools to go out and install these. And so if they um, go out and install something, they've got a limited amount of time. They have to drive out, and then they got to install this or fix it or whatever, and then drive back. Um, you know, there's just not a lot of, of manpower and equipment available to do the job right. And so because they have to run a cable from 
the display unit, which is inside the office or the observer's home or whatever, they often can't put the sensor too far away from the building. And the sensor has to have that cable, and they can't typically trench under a driveway or a sidewalk or whatever. They just don't have the tools nor the time. So they end up getting closer to the buildings and closer to the asphalt because of that. Then we have NOAA and the National Climatic Data Center. NOAA defines the, the specification, but they don't have anyone to enforce it. No one goes out to the Weather Service office and says, hey, you, you installed that incorrectly. Go fix it. No one does that. There's no policing, no enforcement. And then thirdly, the people that use the data, the National Climatic Data Center, they have no clue. They don't go out and, and get involved in these stations at all, nor do they have any power to suggest that they need to be fixed. And so they just blindly use the data, and then when they, you point out to them that data is corrupted and it's got a heat bias, their response is, rather than try to come up with a way to fix it, is to come up with some statistical magic to try to fix it. And, you know, the result is, with that much bias, you know, when you've got anywhere from 89 to 96%, depending on the years, of warm bias in the signal, there's no way you can get rid of that. It's just the only uh, way you can get rid of it is to throw out all the bad stations and just look at the good stations, and that's what we did. And when you look at the good stations only, you end up with a warming rate for climate change over the last 30 years, about half of what the official reports say. The, uh, you, you're, you're, you're very charitable, and maybe your description is, is accurate as to why the situation is the way it is. But I think part of the reason is that it's not in their interest to report this stuff accurately. At least the last, uh, the last group, uh, uh, not the weather service. They, they want to get things right for their local reporting. Uh, as you, as you mentioned in the study, most of these are located next to rain gauges as well, because that's what they really care about. Uh, but, uh, if if they were to do this accurately, if they were to do it really well, it would undercut uh, the, as you say, if, if warming is less than half of what they're reporting, it doesn't sound very alarming all of a sudden. It doesn't, it doesn't motivate them. It, it doesn't allow them to go to Congress and say, oh, we need more funding because catastrophe is in the offing. <laughs> it, oh, we need yeah. more staff. Because uh, the climate's right. ending and we've got to fix this. Uh, you, you can't. Know. That, the problem with the weather, with any government agency, yeah. you can't get more funds for things that are normal. You have to have funds for things that are fixing or abnormal or a crisis or whatever. And that's the whole money machine behind this. There you go. They are always after fixing something because we're in a crisis or it's abnormal or wrong or whatever. I mean, because to be fair. They did set up a network that 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 does this accurately, the the climate reference network, and then they refused yep. to use it. Right? I mean, it's like, look, it's not as if they don't have a network that 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 is accurate. They do. They set it up, and they set it up specifically saying this is the reference network. This is what we're doing to show that we're not biased. And then in none of the reports, they report the data from the reference network because it doesn't match. Uh, what's needed to, you know, generate alarm. Uh, that's my opinion. Yeah. That's my opinion. Well, it's probably not far off the mark. I, I tend to ascribe, um, I have a little maxim. I, I say, 
you know, never ascribe malice to what can be attributed to simple incompetence. And so there's some incompetence going on. I agree. Uh, you know, in the government, I mean, you, you know how it is. If you want to really mess something up, get the government involved because incompetence is what they do. And so there's some of that in there. But there's also, I believe, maybe a little bit of malice in the sense that we're not going to get funded next year unless we continue this crisis. So, Anthony, before we close, if we can't trust the data, why should anyone trust the projection of climate catastrophe? And if we can't trust the current data, what steps do you think the government should take to improve the records and produce more reliable data? Well, first off, we can define the average temperature of the United States on a monthly and yearly basis using the Climate Reference Network. The data that comes from that covers the nation properly, and it was set up to do that exactly. So we should be reporting what the Climate Reference Network says. You can still report what the old network says, and I guarantee you there's going to be a difference between the two. That should be done. We should start reporting on the Climate Reference Network. Secondly, why are we maintaining all of these bad stations that they know are bad, and trying to get data out of them and then trying to statistically fix it. That's crazy. It's make work. Just simply discard those stations. There's no reason to keep them open. I mean, if you want to keep the precipitation readings, which aren't problematic, fine. You know, there's, it's great to have a nice, well-saturated national precipitation network, particularly because things like thunderstorms often produce rain shafts that are only a quarter mile wide. So you want to know about that stuff. But you know, get rid of all the bad temperature stations, the ones that are compromised, and just keep the good ones. That's all that really needs to be done here, instead of all of this statistical machination that's going on. Right. Well, as always, Anthony, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners. Come back soon. Thank you very much. Listeners, thanks for checking out us today. Please check Hartland's website as we follow the work of Anthony Watts. And I encourage you to read both his new report on the woefully flawed U.S. surface station system and, still on sale on Amazon, his report, Climate at a Glance. Go out there and get it because uh, it's informative and you can use it to uh, inform yourself and uh, your kids. Please also follow us as we follow the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care.